Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. All right, welcome back to Discount Film School. Sitting down with an, another uh, former classmate of mine, Eric Larnick, um, who I haven't talked talk to in forever, but th- this is kind of what this <laughs> podcast affords us, is an ability to, to kind of like reestablish connections and whatnot. But what I have noticed, of course, what's, what's nice about, um, if there is anything nice about social media, it's that you get to keep <laughs> up on people sort of without having to talk to them directly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I've, for the last, uh, how many years now have you worked at MovieFone? Uh, I started at the beginning of 2010, so I just passed three years and I'm, you know, uh, going on to four and I like to say that, uh, yeah, three years on the calendar, but it's more like five or six in terms of work experience. Were you, were you interning with them or something at first? Um, it's, it's kind of a complicated, uh, explanation and it has to do with just sort of, I guess the industry and what they allow. Um, I started with movie phone full-time um there is this term called permalancer which is actually not nice it's pretty sucky mm. um where you know it's i guess technically classified as an internship or something like that um you're freelance so you know you're not you're not eligible for benefits or salary or anything like that but you can work up to a full 40-hour, maybe even 50-hour-a-week schedule, mm. um, you're a permanent freelancer. You are, like, exclusively uh, working for one outlet or one uh, payer. Um, so, yeah, that's what I started at initially. I was a permalancer, you know, doing, like, 50 hours a week uh, with MoviePhone. And that was, a, that was just a classified, a job classified, and you applied for it and you got it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I was living in L.A. for a little while after college. Uh, it was never really my thing. And I came back to New York to start over. Well, I came back to New Jersey. I'm from Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, with a film degree, there's two places you can work, basically New York or L.A. So I came back looking for uh, work in New York, being like, well, I actually have a film degree. I want to utilize it. Uh, I want to actually have something that shows for it. And I uh, just started kind of applying to whatever. I mean, this was right when, you know, the economy collapsed. So yeah. everyone was like struggling to look for a job. And when you've got a film degree, a liberal arts degree, it's even harder to find steady work. So I was just kind of taking, you know, whatever I could. And I started doing, you know, freelance writing here and there at a couple different outlets. And uh, luckily, that was enough to build up a portfolio to actually get, you know, this gig. I mean, I may, I may not like the idea of permalancing, but the reality is in in terms of stability, it's one of the more stable positions in this kind of field. So it was actually a pretty plum gig to get uh, because it's full time. You know, you actually get, I mean, it's a real job. Yeah. When you have nothing yeah, right. and then you get something, you're like, yeah, I don't really need a 401k or, or pension <laughs> or anything. Like, yeah. yeah, pretty much. So yeah, I started with there and I just, you know, I, I've been with them full time since. And uh, since then I've kind of become a jack of all trades mm-hmm. taking on all sorts of different responsibilities from behind the scenes more managerial stuff and uh yeah and i'm a an editor community manager 
I got a uh, a weird kind of hyphenate, multi-hyphenate title. <laughs> well, you yeah. were, you were kind of destined for it. So we we, we should um. We should at least for any for the uninitiated who sure. ju- who just know Movie Phone for uh, Showtimes. Yeah, um, it's a it's it's they're, they're a full on you know film review. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, how, how would you describe kind of like the the you know the odds and ends of Movie Phone? Well, I mean, Movie Phone will probably for forever and always be hello and welcome to Movie yeah, Phone, yeah, yeah. Um, and we embrace that wholeheartedly. Uh, yeah, I mean, you come to us, you know, like Fandango, I mean, you come to us for showtimes and buying tickets, and then, you know, we supplement that with everything else from reviews and interviews and columns right. and lists, uh, you know, trailers, you know, like a help to watch trailers or, uh, yeah, pretty much everything you, like, you want, we want to be like a one-stop shop mm-hmm. uh, for a movie fan. Like, if you're, we want you to, say, if you're going out to the movies on a Friday night, and you're going to buy tickets, we want you to get distracted on our site because right. we have so much for you to be distracted with. Immerse you in everything that's happening that week or that month or that Yeah, summer. yeah. Just basically all the everything that's going on in like pop movies, yeah. whatever's going on in like the mainstream pop conversation. And that's why I, I said that you're destined for this because when, <laughs> when I met you when we were like, you know, not even in our 20s, um, I mean, we, we, we were in a circle of friends who were extremely <laughs> pop culture oriented and well-versed but yeah. but i would say um that was your forte even more so <laughs> like you were like comic books like transmedia uh um, yeah very very like i mean were you just an absolute dork of a kid or uh you know yeah you know my my girlfriend has asked me this many times to try to find just to try to understand what the hell she's living with um <laughs> um yeah, I've just always been a dork. You know, I never really put too much, like, active thought into it. At, at the time when I was a kid, it's just, like, I liked stuff. Yeah, You know, and right. I liked devouring stuff. and Easily excited you know, about, you know, fun things. Yeah, and there's just, there was just, when I was a kid, there was just something about, like, the encyclopedic knowledge of, like, oh, I know all about it. That yeah. was so fun to me. Um, and this, you know, I didn't, this was pre-internet. We were the pre-Wikipedia generation, so right. we, like... There was, some value, there was some value in actually knowing it. Yeah, we had to earn it. We had yeah. to track down, like, weird film geek books at the library or issues of Entertainment Weekly that are over our aunt's apartment, you know, and just yep. devour whenever we could. Were you – so, I mean, was was that what led to you wanting to get a film education? And did you consider maybe doing, like, a film studies thing as opposed to production? I mean, what led to that? Um, well, you know, in hindsight, I actually kind of wish I did pursue film studies, but I think – you know, when I was 17, I didn't even realize that was a, a thing. thing. Right. You know, like I thought like film was just sort of this catch all term of like, oh, you learn to write and direct movies yeah. and then you come out of college with a movie. Yeah. Um, I did always I've always just liked um, creativity and and writing, creative writing. I've always wanted to do something in that regard. Um I just kind of always bounced around like as a kid, I wanted to write comics and, you know, and I used to make them as a kid. And then it just and then in high school, you know, I used to write sketches and one act plays to put up and make, you know, short movies with friends. I just always liked it. And um, I never really put too much of a applied track thinking as to like, I want to have this specific career, but film just kind of seemed like that seems like the most fun. Mm -hmm. You know, that seems like that's like that's the real that's the big party. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's what led me to pursue, uh, even like, even in high school, like sophomore year of high school, I think I was already pretty set on like, yeah, I want to go to film school. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I just always kind of had like, cause it's fun and that was really it. I never really thought any more deeply beyond like, this is fun. This is what I want to do with my life because it's fun and that's what you should do with your life. So was, that's there, what... was there an element to, you know, you, you surely like, especially being a sophomore in high school, I bet you were reading, um, interviews with directors and you yeah. were kind of like getting really behind the scenes about it and whatnot. And, and they all talk about film school and you're following yeah. Comic-Con and is that kind of what made you be like, Oh, I kind of want to be doing that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I remember, getting mall rats on dvd yeah. you know we were the generation that had like direct director's commentary on dvd and like holy shit that yeah. that opened the floodgates and i remember getting mall rats that was huge for and me. that yeah and that commentary is still i still hold that as like one of the funniest best commentaries ever on a dvd and i actually ended up enjoying that I love the movie, but that like took it to a whole new level of enjoyment. And I was like, wow, so the whole behind-the-scenes process sounds like even more fun. You're just there with your friends, and you're doing this thing, and you have all these stories and anecdotes. And, and a lot of those, yeah, a lot of those uh, like indie filmmakers from the 90s, like the kind of the Miramax generation, yeah. those guys, you know, like the, the Kevin Smiths, the Robert Rodriguez's, the Tarantino's, the Soderbergh's, they started to kind of, especially when DVD popped out, they started to really kind of become more transparent and open up about the process. And, and they were, yeah. cause they were film geeks too. And so they were, they were like, Hey, like I, a film geek is making films. I'm going to go share yeah. this with all the other film geeks. And it just kind of spawned tons of geekiness. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I just devoured it all as a teenager and you know, I just wanted to be part of it, yeah. you know, and that's what led me to film school. A lot of I think. That, that that's the case with, with everybody our age, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least the ones that went to film school. Yeah. So, I mean, but to get back to your original question about, you know, film production versus like film studies, I think, um, uh, you know, you're young, you're a teenager, you know, you're 17. You don't actually quite know the fine tuned, like what exactly it is that you spark to. And, you know, I tried the film production thing and it was never, I mean, I love screenwriting and I love that level of it, but that's about as far uh, invested as I would like to get into like the idea of the production world. I think I remember you, you joined uh, the the sketch comedy club that all my friends were in uh, ECW. Yeah. You actually, you were like one of the, weren't, weren't you kind of like a manager of it at some point? <laughs> yeah, pretty coach? much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Cause no one can get their shit together. And so someone had to do it. But I remember you being, um, uh, I mean, you were a performer, you did, you, you did everything in that, in that group, but I remember you driving the writing for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I just always love that feeling of being in a room workshopping yeah. creative ideas with your friends. And, um, you know, I when you're in college, you see so many people half-ass it and kind of slack their way through it. And I just always want to be like, oh, you know, yeah, we're, we're young and we should be having fun. But, like, let's do this seriously so we don't, like look obnoxious on stage yeah and also like i mean you know half-ass your way through something boring not something as fun as yeah you know, yeah make make pretend with your friends you know yeah pretty much you should take that shit seriously <laughs> yeah um so uh uh did you so you you of course found you were like you know what i can i can definitely put pen to paper I love group sessions. I love group writing. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, did you go through the production curriculum of like film one, film two, and, yeah, and find yeah. like this isn't really for me? Yeah, that was pretty much it exactly. Um, 
I've always been very uh, economic. Uh, we'll use that word. And uh, <laughs> cheap. Yeah, pretty, you know. <laughs> I'm the, the same way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily see. I don't know if I necessarily had the best production teachers either, um, and I just, yeah, it was just like the cost started to add up. And like, oh fuck, man, film is expensive, and it yes. doesn't even look that great. Right. Um, and it's like, oh, I'm gonna pay a lot of money and do a to find out I did a bad job with this, and and then you know I started trying to just fit in other classes that I liked at the time with you know writing and different writing, not just in the film program, but it's like I'm gonna try to take a stab at uh, stand-up comedy writing or TV writing or playwriting and just for some reason those teachers I liked their method I liked their approach better and then just I just drifted away from the production side I was like I got my prerequisites and I'm, I'm done and yeah. I'm not looking back yep um so and then I left I graduated uh college with a ver- with a very weird <laughs> uh curriculum uh, under my belt yeah um, and that was like 07, right? 06, 07? Uh, 06, yeah. Okay, yeah 06. I graduated a year earlier from everyone, so I had an extra year to plunge off the post-college abyss. Right, right. And then <laughs> and then you uh, – so so it's in between – so you get the, the freelancer gig with Movie Phone. Mm-hmm. How long after graduation? Oh, uh, three years. I mean I graduated college and then – you know, like I said, I had all these like weird – Oh, that's right. It was uh, 09. That's right. It was during the yeah, crash. Yeah. Yeah, I had all those like weird things to to my belt, and I was just like, I don't know what the hell, what the hell am I supposed to do with all this stuff? So it's gonna you be know? A, a horrifying period of time, right? Yeah, and you know, it, like you said, I like that, it, you know, like being in the room, like that collaborative thing. I like being in that room, and it's like, well, I, you know, I can't do that full time and get make money off of it just yet. So I got to do something now to pay the bills to get to that point, and. You know, you're young and you just kind of figure out, like, what the hell is that going to be? Um, and so many of our friends and, like, collaborators are moving to L.A. just to try it. And I was right. like, I should do this before I get too old because I was never really uh, gung-ho about L.A. It was never really my scene. Yeah. But it was like, well, everyone's out there that I know and love and want to work with. So it's the best safety net I could ever have. So let me try it. And if I don't like it, I can always move back and start over again and that's pretty much what I did you know that whole process of like saving up money to go to LA living in LA then saving up money to go back to New York and saving up money in New York takes a while and it adds up and uh you know I remember like coming home from work one day in October of 2008 in Los Angeles and I turn on the evening news and they talk about like oh the the country is in upheaval. The market crashed in record lows. And I was like, huh, I wonder if this is going to affect me. <laughs> Affected everybody. Yeah. In some so, yeah. yeah, you know, I just kind of went along with the ride, tried not to stress out, although I'm sure I did. I know I did. But, you know, just sort of like take it and just try to be like Siddhartha and just learn from each new location and take it and grow. And that's sort of what led me to becoming a freelance writer and editor in New York yeah. from that graduating college moment. Were you glad to have gone to the West Coast though? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I miss it now. Um, I miss like the, the good moments. I think, you know, everyone gets grass is greener. Yeah. And, uh, and you only remember good stuff. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I think LA is fantastic to visit um it's a challenge to live there because the culture is very intense so if you're not like mature enough for it it can really yeah run you over and you know but i think there's a point where it's like 
you know, I even think about, you know, moving back if I have like a, you know, stars align and there's like certain career things. I'm like, yeah, I, I would have no problem moving back there in a heartbeat. Like, oh, okay. so, but yeah, it's just not where I want to be right now. Yeah. I, I, I need the seasons. I find that's something I need. That, that too. And I think that is kind of, uh, underrated or underestimated in terms of like a reason that affects people because creatively yeah it's great uh when it's like shitty in february in boston and it's covered in snow and the antifreeze that they used to melt the snow and it just stains your pants and it's like the worst place in the world to be la is like the best place in the world then yeah but but then when you like actually like christmas or halloween Mm -hmm. or any like real classic different weather and you don't get it it starts to like it feels a little bit like the twilight zone yeah exactly i I think there's something to be said for like changing seasons um illustrate time passing yeah and so it gets you like you know that things are moving by you you should be working on stuff um different temperatures i feel like affect you mentally and uh and and it affects your energy you know i'm i'm a fat guy, so in the summer I'm like, <laughs> I have no energy. But in the winter I'm real crisp, and yeah, I just found like you know I was only out there for about six months, but I it was just for the program. But even just in that time, like being in an outdoor hot tub in December, I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Where the fuck am I? <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Yeah, I think people can fall into the trap of getting into Neverland syndrome because it feels yeah. like you're out there in summer vacation all the time. So just live it up, right, you know? And- right. You never have to grow up. Time is infinite. And yeah. 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 And then you meet like a 45 year old weirdo. Just like <laughs> He's in the hot tub too. <laughs> yeah. You're not hip enough to be here. You're, you're weirding the ladies out. You need to go. Sorry, not to be ageist, but you need to get out of here. <laughs> and you realize it's you. It's, it's that moment. With, <laughs> it's, it's that moment with when Luke slices off Vader's helmet and it's his face. You're just like, I'm the 45 year old creepy man. Um, so, uh, so, so talk about, evolving from like oh i'm just thankful to have a job mm-hmm. to all these hyphens um that end up in your job i mean that's pretty awesome is, is, is that just nose of the grindstone is that talent and what kind of opportunity uh, did they give you uh, i i hope it's a little bit of talent you know i don't want to toot my own horn too loudly but i think talent is a little bit of it um the whole I guess I'll call it like entertainment journalism, although you, I guess you can go broad and say journalism. I always feel weird calling myself a journalist because I feel <laughs> You're not like reporting journal- on Iraq. <laughs> yeah, I feel like journalists should be embedded, you know, in Benghazi, not uh, like writing about the zookeeper. How much oblivion sucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess we'll talk. We'll say, we'll call it entertainment journalism. Um, yeah, it just moves very fast and it's very competitive, so it changes. Everything changes from terms of like budget and company direction, creative direction. It'll change like every three months. And, you know, you got to learn to swim with the tide rather than get knocked down by it. Yeah. Um, and that's just something you get with experience. Like stay out in um, front of it, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Know when it's coming, sort of yeah. know how to anticipate, right. you know, well, this is going to change. So, you know, I need to. I need to be doing something more than just writing about the movies I like. Like I have to find a way to prove that that is a skill set worth keeping on. Mm-hmm. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, Oh great. I get to talk to celebrities and write about movies I like. And that's true. That's part of it, but that's like the surface level part of it. Um, and if that's all you ever think about, you're going to get eaten alive just yeah. by how competitive 
the whole industry is. Well, so then what's a good example of like, um, you know, something that you need to keep your eye on? Um, I think he, and I sound like such a square old dad or like a guidance counselor when I say this, but I feel like having like a skill set. Um, and I think really understanding the, you know, the quote unquote new media, you know, like writing for the internet right. or even learning how to write for mobile devices mm-hmm. or learning about social media. Um, I think just sort of understanding how people technolo- consume those. Yeah, how people consume media, how technology changes, how fast it does, what people, how people are reading, how people are keeping up to date on news and like just you have to you have to know that stuff and you have to, you know, you have to know what you're talking about um, and you have to be able to anticipate what the audience is probably going to do. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and that means looking at tech trends and yeah. uh, forecasting, essentially. Yeah, it's funny that you said um, earlier, you know, like about social media, you know, one of the few benefits it has because that's actually something that that's one of the biggest uh, multi-hyphens I've been adding to my job is, you know, understanding social media from like an actual business perspective of, all right, how do you get people to read via social media? How do you, how do you actually get people to, you know, you can't make money off of Twitter. Twitter doesn't make money. It's like a crazy, weird, giant beast where, you know, you can't make money. You can't sell advertising on it. But you can collect metrics from Twitter. Yeah. And that's, you have to figure out how to collect the best metrics from Twitter, yeah. you know, because you could just like tweet out constantly and maybe you get some retweets or some favorites. But what does that actually mean? How yeah. is it keeping your business afloat? How can you leverage uh, that? Yeah. And so that's like something I've had to learn a lot about. Um, and, you know, there's the cynical marketing side of it that you can roll your eyes at. But I actually think it's kind of fascinating just from like a societal trend of like, sure. this is how people are talking now. You know, no, this I, is w- this is where the conversation is happening. And you can, even though Twitter's, you know, can be insanely vapid and stupid, you know, there are ways to use it and say something really smart that people will listen to that will impact people. Um, and you just have to know how to say it. Even if it's as simple as, you know, before this platform we had no idea. We didn't have a nearly as good I- of an idea of what the consumer was thinking. Yeah. Th- this, um, even, even with, um, as much noise as there is, um, yeah. if we can get, if we can start to kind of pare that do- down and zoom in on what they're thinking, we can write to that too. You know, we can, yeah. we can, we can basically meet them where they are. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the hardest parts of the job. Um, because you know, the best way to sort of glean any audience is to just listen to them and that means like oh i guess i have to spend time on twitter this morning Mm -hmm. and when you just see like a flood of like what the hell like i can't believe like i have to read this oh here's one good thing that i can learn from oh and there's 10 more stupid things that came in in the last 30 seconds and twitter's got to be like you know twitter and facebook are so ubiquitous they're they're used by so, like, I remember when we, I, I, I said this to Kurt when we did his podcast, I remember one of the first things, we, 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 you know, one of our first conversations, he was like, I'm pretty sure this place is where all the people from the IMDB message boards go to school. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I think that, like, in the past, the kinds of people that posted things on the internet yeah. were the kinds of people who posted things on the internet. Yeah. Um, and so they weren't a good representation of what an audience would go see. Like, for instance, I remember um, when Snakes on a Plane 
was coming out, and it looked like it was going to be the biggest movie ever because yeah. there was so much buzz around it, and then it didn't make any money. Well, it was like, well, that's because only you know this kind of percentage of the audience that found it ironic and funny, and didn't even necessarily need to go see it to complete their joke. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 mass audiences weren't even all that aware of it, so they kind of had like a it was it was just kind of a misrepresentation. Whereas I think Facebook and Twitter, it really is your mom, your aunt, your uncle. Yeah, you know. It changed so fast. Right. You know, it changed, like, during our kind of formative years. Like, I remember, you exactly. know, Facebook coming out when we were in college, and Facebook was this thing was like, oh, it's exclusive only to your college. For you college can't, students, yep. You know, you just have to, like, it's like setting up a Rolodex of people in your college. And then by the time I was done college, it was now open to 12-year-old girls. And I was just like, oh, this is weird. Now I feel like I've my privacy has been invaded. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the, the floodgates have been open, and now uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, everybody is, is swarming around me. Um, but you can learn if you're trying to market a product. <laughs> it's very useful. Yeah, it's funny that you, you reference snakes on a plant. I think that's like a classic example mm-hmm. because one trick, one thing, there's a mirage with the Internet, and that is it's – louder than I think the conversation actually is. Yes. Um, you know, it's anonymous for the most part. You don't actually know who these people are, how many there are, what what they're actually doing. You know, all you, if you just look at, you know, a message board or if you look at, you know, if like Tumblr gets upset about something and then Tumblr goes on a crusade against something, you're not actually sure how many people are behind it and you're not actually sure how much they're talking about it in the physical space right you know if people are just sort of being angry or vocal about something in on twitter which is easy yeah because it's easy it's right in front of you it's just like right there all the time you know but how much is that actually translating to you know your town you know your school your your job where the conversation's continuing you don't know you don't know what is going on you know you have no idea how many people were actually talking about snakes on a plane other than like what was on message boards right like it could have been the same 10 guys with 20 different profiles yeah it could be yep it kind of reminds me of like if you're sitting in a room of people having a discussion Mm -hmm. and there's one person in the discussion who's really loud and dominating (laughs) most of the conversation you walk away with the impression that there was some kind of consensus like well everybody thought this and then if you really think about it you're like actually it was just that one loud guy and everybody else was quiet so i have no idea what they thought the the internet's kind of like that it's kind of yeah pretty much it looks like consensus but it's really just a maybe you know a few loud minority yeah, the internet. Oh, yeah. Just always remember, the internet is your loud fat friend. Right, right. <laughs> does it? So, does that mean that um, that more traditional ways of collecting data are still valuable? I hope so. I think so. Um, I, you, I think one dilemma with the internet is that it's definitely shortening attention spans, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I hope. I still think, you know, the old school ways are still better because, you know, it's good to have a physical copy in front of you. Right. You know, it's good to have something that was like done with research that wasn't cited on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah, it's just because technology moved so fast and information became so convenient and accessible that, you know, certain processes for, um, you know, accurate reporting or accurate information just kind of got lost because they took they took quote unquote 
too long and it's like well too long according yes according to like the split second it takes to make an edit on wikipedia yes it's too long but it's like do you want it done fast or you want it done right i think it's you can't have it both ways and you're working in an industry that's that's about getting in the car and driving to a multiplex and sitting and buying a ticket and sitting down which is you know none of it's taking place online Uh, yeah you know, they're they're. I mean, Netflix is, has a tremendous market. Hulu's got a tremendous market. YouTube is taking up everybody's fucking time. Um, but there's still, I mean, still, box office is huge. Yeah, I mean, movie, movie making is a physical community experience. Right. Still, and that's. I hope that's what it'll always be. I mean, there will be things like Netflix and YouTube, and it'll change. Maybe maybe it'll change what the theater looks like. Yeah. But I think people want to see movies because they want to see something with their friends and they want to talk about something and, you know, they want to be part of a group thing. And that's like a physical thing. It's a physical space. It's like real voices. It's real ideas and opinions and thoughts and being shared face to face. My observation is that, uh, the, you know, all, all, all of the sort of, um, uh, more immediate video on demand type formats are a- aiding in making everybody, more like Eric Larnick, like more like young, <laughs> more like young Eric Larnick, where everybody sure. becomes interested and engaged in what's coming out and what's going on. It, it kind of makes everybody more of a media consumer, and um, and I think that ultimately that translates into people going to the movies on Friday. So now they are like it all kind of leads up to like, well, this big movie's coming out. The anticip it adds to anticipation. I think. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope like, yeah, because I grew up in the '90s. For some, I think just because. Pulp Fiction came out at the exact right age for me that I immediately sparked a Tarantino mm-hmm. and like the whole indie wave. So the idea of like tracking down obscure movies and weird old movies and indie movies like that clicked with me um, as a teenager in those formative years. And so I hope, you know, something like Video On Demand does that for like the weird things and the interesting and the fringe that yeah. like, you know, there are. Yeah, I hope there are more like movie geeks like me i guess sure <laughs> i mean i, I don't want to rewrite the genetic code so that <laughs> that everyone is like me but yeah the i would factor. See, yeah pretty much i would love for you know cool ideas to get out there because the technology is allowing them to get out there now and there's young audiences that don't even know that they love it and now it's just like it's a click of a button away and they could find the thing that changes their life how much is movie phone able to um to, to kind of shine the spotlight on, on the, that more fringe stuff? Or is it really focused on tent poles and whatnot? It's, it's a challenge because, um, you know, yeah, we're definitely writing for a mainstream audience. And I think mainstream America um, has a completely different uh, understanding of film. Uh, there's one argument point that I've always seen again and again and again which is, a, you know, movies are supposed to be a distraction. They're not supposed to be realistic. They're supposed to distract you from real life so you can take your mind off of your stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, I guess so. But then that kind of dismisses so many great movies that are, you know, that are hard and confrontational and don't have a happy ending. Or naturalistic um, or... Yeah. yeah. I think just a lot of people want that. They want popcorn. They want you know, the rock and, <laughs> they want the rock. and fast cars. I mean, and, to, and any trying, trying to apply any spozdas to, to any, <laughs> to any art format is, is kind of, um, 
is kind of dangerous, obviously. I mean, my, my, I've, I've struggled with it for a long time. You know, I, I got in this stupid conversation one, one time recently with somebody where I was trying to convince them that my podcasts are a form of art. Yeah. And, uh, and they were like, no, it's, it's sitting down and talking. And I said, I, so I had, I had to construct some kind of definition that allowed for my podcast. <laughs> so yeah. what, what I came up with, I was like, you know what I, I think it is, is it art is anything that was created. So something has mm-hmm. to have been created. So you and me talking without it being uh, recorded is not art. But okay. we rec- but we record it, and I, I think it. Be- and then uh, there has to be an element of expression. Yeah, somebody has to be expressing something. If it's those mm-hmm. two things, and you know, I I think that um that there, that there's room for. So I you know I go with a real broad definition. And uh, but you're right. I mean, they a lot of people are you know, using the word supposed to means that that you're supposed to make them that way. But I think yeah. what I think what they mean is it's most useful for them when. They can escape from their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think art should have a a broad definition. And if anyone ever says that, uh, you know, a podcast can't be art, I'm going to get I'm going to get real snooty right now and say that, you know, (laughs) Plato and Aristotle, you know, their conversations were transcribed and served as the principles of philosophy. And it was literally just two people talking. Right. And those things are like held up as the some of the most important classical pieces of storytelling. And it's right. literally two people that had a real conversation. Early podcasting. Yeah. So you could just be like, you're on you're on the same level as Aristotle, Frankie. That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's get trashy. Sure. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll I'll see what I can reveal. <laughs> I had a feeling we were gonna go here. Well, you know, it's it's just too it's too appealing not to. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had a lot of really fun interview opportunities over the years. Mm-hmm. What sticks out in your mind? You know, across three years, what sticks out in your mind is like I love my fucking job. Um, I've had a couple great interviews, and I'm gonna say I kind of go back and forth between which was the best. Um. I'll say, I'll, I think most people will think is the best was I got to talk to Mel Brooks. Um, and this was pretty much of my own initiative because he didn't have anything coming up that was being promoted. Uh, but the fly, the Jeff Goldblum f- fly from the 80s, it was celebrating its 25th anniversary back in 2011, I, I think. Um, and, you know, nostalgia always does really well on the Internet. And yeah. so... You know, we were just trying to think of, oh, what can we do around the fly? Like maybe, you know, 25 reasons the fly is great. You know, like some kind of list or, you know, some list that you see on the Internet or like a BuzzFeed thing of like pictures that you just call an article <laughs> and call it a day. Right. Um, and because I've always been a weird devourer of knowledge and pop culture trivia, I was like, man, you know, it'd be really cool if we got to talk to Mel Brooks. And the staff was like, Why? And I said, well, because he produced that movie uncredited because, you know, he's a really in the 80s. You know, he produced that and he produced Eraserhead by David Lynch. He gave David Lynch his start. And, I didn't um, know that. Oh, yeah. He, he started a production company in the late 70s, early 80s called Brooks Film. Um, and, you know, Mel Brooks is a huge film geek and he especially had a penchant for sci-fi and horror. And he knew that if he put his name on something, the public would immediately think it was one thing. Right. So I'm sorry, not Eraserhead. He produced the Elephant Man. He saw Eraserhead, oh, okay. and he was like, "David Lynch is the guy that should do the Elephant Man." But he didn't, you know, he didn't want to put a Mel Brooks film because then everyone would have expected a parody of the Elephant Man, and he wanted to tell the serious story. 
Um, and he did the same thing for Cronenberg with The Fly. You know, he wanted to remake The Fly, um, but not as a gimmicky 50s Vincent Price parody. Like, he wanted to really explore the idea of, like, the co- he, like he in his own words, he wanted to explore the Kafka-esque, yeah. you know, implications behind it. And so everyone at Movie Home was like, whoa, I didn't know that. And it's like, yeah, let's do that. And so we made a pitch out and... It was just a you know shot in the dark. Hey, why not? You know, maybe he wants to talk to us, and sure enough, he did. And so I got to talk to him. Wait a minute. So did you, did you when you approached him, or when you when you sent something out to him, was it like we want to talk about your uncredited producers' roles on these films? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay. Yeah, you, I mean, you were upfront like, about that. Yeah, the flies coming. Up, its anniversary's coming up, and yeah. you know, I think looking back at this, like. I love that connection. I love David Lynch and I love David Cronenberg and I love Mel Brooks. And I love that there's this little moment in pop culture yeah. history where they were all together. They're some of the most um, important filmmakers of all time. Yeah. And so I was just like, I just, I just want to talk about that because that's cool. Yeah, and right. I think people should know about that because that's cool. Um, and you know, he was totally game to talk for it. And, you know, we are scheduled to talk for 15 minutes, um, which is pretty par for the course when you have a promotional interview. And then we, he and I ended up just talking for over an hour. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, because I'm going to toot my own horn here. Like I knew my shit. Um, and so he could go deep with you. Yeah. I think he appreciated that. Yeah. Like I knew what he was talking about and I think he enjoyed being able to talk about this little quiet chapter of his career. And so I ended up talking to him for over an hour and every, you know, every five minutes, every time he finished an answer, I was expecting some publicist to be like, all right, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for, you know, talking. And it never happened. And so I was just like, in the moment, I was like, holy shit, what, what, uh, what, what am I doing? Yeah. And I was just like, I can't, don't blow this. Don't blow this. Just let it keep going. Just keep going. You know? (laughs) Just keep going until they drag me away. And so I ended up having an hour-long conversation with Mel Brooks where we talk about weird horror movies and sci-fi movies and just like wow. that that love of obscureness. And a weird so, – I'm sure it's it's a weird interview for him. I'm sure he doesn't get engaged about that very often. Yeah, I guess not. Um, yeah, so that I think maybe will probably be no matter what. No matter what comes down the road, that might be the landmark. Yeah, you'll remember that the rest of your life. Of, yeah. Um, so that is probably a great one. Although I will, <laughs> uh, I will say this in terms of other accomplishments. When Osama bin Laden died, The Rock was the first person to break the news, even before Obama. Really? Because he, yeah, he tweeted about it a half hour before Obama gave the press conference at like eleven o'clock at night. Um, like The Rock was like, just got some good news from our. Our fighting soldiers, you know, this is a great day for America. God bless America. And, you know, it sort of circulated the next morning on, like, you know, water cooler news. Like, hey, you know, The Rock tweeted that Bin Laden knew before he, uh, before Obama yeah, I didn't know that. broke the news. And so uh, it was coming up for Journey 2, the Journey to the Center of the right. Earth sequel. You know, and The Rock was doing, you know, his usual kind of PR routine of just, like, outlets talking to everyone for seven minutes you know giving your two minute sound bite to entertainment tonight um and i was like yeah sure the rock he's fun i like wrestling why sure, not this will sure. be, be goofy and i realized no one has asked him about that because i don't think people realize like 
that's a weird, interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't, you know, I don't think people think to know more about that. Um, and I realized no one had asked him about it, that in the six months since it happened. And so this was a crazy day where he was in Hawaii and you know, our conversation kept getting like postponed. And eventually it was like 11 o'clock at night, my time, and, you know, uh, I had no idea if this interview was going to even happen. And it was getting pulled and it was getting cut time. I had to like fight with PR people like, no, I want this time with the rock. Um, and so when it finally came time, like 11 o'clock at night, I was like, all right, I'm in this weird zone where they're going to try to take this away from me. So I got to make the most out of this. And so the, you know, talk to the Rocky, you know, I, within the first 30 seconds, that was my first question. I was like, how did you know about Osama bin Laden before anyone else? And I don't think he was prepared for that. <laughs> uh, I wasn't trying to, you know, catch him off guard, but he was just like, uh, uh, well, uh, you see, the Rock's got friends, you know. <laughs> You're like, uh, he's a jabroni. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, and then the next day, you know, when the interview published, I started to see, you know, my scoop, as it were. Like, that was a scoop, and I started circulating, like, on Time and on Fox News. Right. And I was just like, wow, that's cool. Like, those are just, like, those cool moments where it's like, these are the things I want to know about. They don't necessarily fall into the the routine of like boring cliche and question. You, and because you thought to ask it now it's out there for public. Knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And so I think like those are the moments that I like best where it's like, I go into it thinking, I don't necessarily go into it thinking, is this going to be the most entertaining article for the audience? I go into it thinking, I want to know this. I yeah. want to keep devouring more pop culture knowledge. So I'm going to find out. And it clicks. That's the better. That's, that's the better strategy, almost. Yeah. Um, it, it, it much in the same way that it's, that a filmmaker. You know, it's like if you love what you're doing and you have passion for what you're doing, that'll translate to an audience. If you try to anticipate what they're going to go for, then there'll be this weird kind of dishonest disconnect. I'm sure the same is true for for journalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially for you know, like something like a celebrity interview. It's such a weird beast. You know, if you're able to step outside yourself and think about like what it is. Um, because, you know, you want to have an interesting conversation, um, that's entertaining to read and has new information to read. Um, and so that the audience can learn something new. Um, but it has to be done in 10 minutes and there's PR people hovering around and Mm -hmm. on the phone with you, you know, and there's all these weird caveats just to get into the room to have the conversation. And then, you know, this has happened plenty of times where, you know, say a talent, you know, they've gone through so many of these interviews where they've had bad questions and they're just tired. And it's just a it's just a part of the job. It's a part right. of the routine to them. That's not fun. So then they have canned responses, you know, and they just kind of want to get these sound bites out there. And those sound bites are safe for them and they're good PR for them, but they're not interesting to read. Right. You know, and you got to you got to get something cool and interesting and new and entertaining out of them. So are you, are you encouraged to, to look for those questions that nobody else would have thought to ask? Oh, sure. Definitely. I think everyone is, um, I think everyone is, I hope so. Everyone, I hope that everyone is, um, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it is kind of a con game. It is kind of a confidence game because, you know, it's really cheap and easy and exploitable to take someone's quotes and put them out of context and give yourself a great headline. 
and you're making a great headline for yourself at the expense of this person. Yes. Um, I don't, I don't like that. I think that's so sleazy. Um, well, it's unethical so I, journalism. Yeah. You know, I avoid it and I try, I do my best to avoid it. And, you know, maybe the challenge, cause you know, you're in the moment, you're just kind of, you have to improvise. You have no idea how the conversation's going to go. You have no idea how the person's going to react. So, you know, in those moments where I'm like, well, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do this because that's sleazy. That's TMZ like, yeah. you know, and it's just like, it's all those kind of split second decisions you make in your head in a conversation. It's like, oh, well, now the conversation's going someplace that's kind of boring because I don't want to do that. Because, yep. you know, they may have said something not realizing, oh, I could totally take this and spin it and make them look like an idiot or a racist or a homophobe. Um, but that's not what they mean by it, and I'm not going to do that. So then you kind of, and then you lose two minutes, you know, just kind of letting. All right, let them finish their point, and then yeah. take it back to a com- take it back to another talking point that you want to go at. But it's like, oh, you lost two minutes, and you had seven minutes with yeah. them, and it's just like it's that kind of thing where you just got to know, you got to pick your battles, I guess. You know which which like conversation topics you really want to hit at. Um, but and it's just like it it's different every time. And so everyone who goes into that process of like trying to get a good interview, uh, you know, it, they could slip up. They could just maybe not pounce, capitalize on a great talking point of like, no, let's go there. Let's go down this tangent. Um, it, it happens. So that first question must be kind of key in a way, cause it kind of sets the stage and, and gets them on a certain track, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah pretty much. One thing I, and I've learned to do this now is, just something small talky. Uh, I also, it helps that since I'm such a weird dork for <laughs> like pop culture, I usually know so many weird backstories, like weird, obscure movies. Um, so I, I like to just talk about something unrelated to be like, I always liked you in this or I always liked this. And it's genuine. It's not, I mean, 99% of the time it's genuine. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if it's like, wow, they got nothing. They got nothing but crap, but I'll have to like say something positive. Um, but you know, it's just like an icebreaker and I can figure out in that icebreaker, like how it's going to go. Cause if they're just like, Oh, thanks. You know, it's just cause they're tired yeah. or they just don't want to be there. I'm just like, Oh, this is going to be a long 10 minutes. I have to work to really get an interesting conversation out of them. Do you, I mean, I think almost at that point when you get that kind of, when you don't get anything back, you must want to just kind of like, all right, you know what? I'll steer away from that. We're going to get a strong set of canned answers and, and call it done, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I know that like, yeah, it's sort of like a sacrifice. It's like, well, I know I'm going to get a canned answer to this, this and this. So let me just hold maybe my one question that I really, really, really want to get to at the very end and just like drop it on them like a bomb at the end so that, it wakes them up and there's no time afterward yeah. for it to go bad. It's just like, all right, you said it and we're done. So I'm leaving. I got my quote. So, um, do you, are, are, are you one of the, uh, the press junket guys? Do you sit on camera or are you almost all phone? Uh, oh, I've done it all. I've okay. done red carpet. I've been on camera. I've been on camera with some weird people. Um, uh, yeah, I've done phoners. I've gone to, press conferences, round tables. Um, yeah, I've been in like every environment and yes, the red carpet is the worst, absolute worst thing in the world. It yeah. just, like, I, I'm not a showy guy and you have to be, to be there. And it's just like, 
I feel like such a dipshit when I'm on the red carpet. I'm just like, this is, I'm just, I want to punch myself in the face. Especially like, I, I, I have to imagine there's a lot of like trying to tug on people's shirts and be like, talk oh to yeah. Them. And they're so, they're just, people will just be obnoxious. Like you'll get elbowed by someone who wants to get their thing in. You'll have your questions stolen. Oh my you know, God. someone will just like transcribe, say you're getting uh, a, and a soundbite with a talent, you know, and they're responding to your question. Someone's just recording it and they're transcribing it and they'll get it up before you do. And it might be their scoop, Holy even fuck. though. Yeah. Is, yeah there, that's is, how there, is there nothing protecting a journalist from that? Having, that happen? No, yeah. no, there's no there's nothing protecting that. That's just like kind of the rules of the game. Um, and that's West. one of the reasons like when it's like super competitive, especially with the Internet is because, you know, quick, quick, some quick. ass some asshole can just like just shoulder check you listen to what someone says to you listen to what molly ringwald said to you about john hughes and then tweet it and hold now it's theirs it's theirs yep yeah and you can't it's totally legal um i don't know i don't know if it's even ethical i don't even know if ethics end of that conversation but that's just how the business works and it's like they they can do it so they do it yeah wow um so you you know, getting you uh, nailed down. This is one of your first days off in a long time. You said, "Yeah." <laughs> um, what are they keeping you so busy with? Is it is it kind of an around the clock sort of a thing where it's like, "Hey, an opportunity is coming up, and we just need you." Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's a tight staff. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know that's another thing. I guess for people who would be interested in pursuing, you know, this kind of field like entertainment journalism, film criticism film reviews the the amount of applicants is a lot larger than the amount of positions Mm. um so i'm very thankful and very lucky to have a staff position with a national outlet um so it's just yeah it's just a it's just a lot of work to maintain that position and it's just there's so much work and uh there's only there's only so many people they can afford you know keep doing the work like i guess like using that example like the guy on the red carpet you know he can just like have his own weird website that kind of gets a following on twitter and facebook just builds up the numbers and then you know you can sort of network your way and smooth talk your way into press events and then you know that's a thing that's a competitor and it's just like that's money out of your pocket yeah so yeah Anyone can be anyone can be a critic. Anyone can be a film critic, um, and it's hard. It's hard for the the business world to justify paying all of them right, exactly, <laughs> since exactly. everyone can do it. So yeah, so so that's why you kind of have an obligation to uh, to fulfill your role in, in as fully as you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not a it's not the most glamorous or fun aspect of it. I think. And it only comes with experience, learning how to lasso it all in and not lose control of your social life. Because, I mean, it's very true that uh, you can work seven days a week. You can work round the clock. Yeah. Um, and I don't like that. And uh, you shouldn't have to do that. But there's definitely a demand to do that because that's just the way the Internet works. You know, looking at this past you know, holiday weekend, you know, we got to enjoy being off, but you know, there are people that still had to like, there's still journalists at my company that had to work, 
you know, maybe they got to work from home, but it's like you're still stuck to a computer for eight or nine hours just because news doesn't stop. Right. And also the Internet's definition of news is a little bit more liberal and uh, wider. So, yeah. Oh, so and so went baby shopping. That's news. Better get it up. (laughs) We have to talk about it. Yeah, we have to talk about Kim Kardashian's baby. Yeah. And it's been five days since it was born. What's been going on? What's going on on day five of baby gate? <laughs> um, so do you, do you work in a New York office or is there yeah. no office? Oh, you do. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a New York office and, um, we're right in the heart of union square in New York. It's funny. We share a building with variety and we're going to be sharing space with Facebook. Um, it's kind of a, uh, from the outside, it doesn't look so uh, Silicon Valley-esque, but it really is like inside. It's just like all sorts of entertainment publications are just rooted in this one spot right in the village in New York. Um, and we're, you know, we're right down the street from the NYU journalism department. So it's just sort of in the air yeah. right around where we work. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, there's an LA office, although, uh, or I should say a Beverly Hills office. I mean, we have offices, but a lot of people still do that kind of roaming freelance thing, working from home. And, uh, it sounds like fun, but after a while, it's really hard to stay disciplined when it's like, well, I don't have to uh, put pants on right. or shower or brush my teeth. And then, yeah, I was, I was surprised to hear that they even had an office at all. It almost seems like something you could do decentrally. Well, yeah, I mean, those freelancers, those people kind of going out, chasing stories, chasing interviews, chasing reviews, uh, I think they're sort of unfortunately stuck in that position yeah. where, you know, they have weird hours. They kind of have to write their own hours. Mm-hmm. A story might happen at eight o'clock at night on a Saturday night. So they have to be there. You know, if there's like a film, if there's a, a film event, if there's some sort of screening and Q&A on a Saturday night, that's where they have to be. So they have to be there for work. It's cool, but it's work. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah, when you get into that, you're still working and you're still putting in hours. And if you're working from home, it, it can be easy to be like, you know, when you feel like that late afternoon crash from work and then you're like, oh, my God, I haven't showered either. <laughs> Put clothes on. Holy shit. I need to. What am I doing with my life? <clears throat> Making money. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sounds like you're having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, if anybody wanted to, to first of all, um, look into... Uh, what you do, if they want to see you do in your job. Um, I, I, I believe when I went to the movie film website, there was like an E. Larnick or an Eric Larnick that you could just yeah. like a link you could click and see all your stuff, everything you're up to. Um, reviews, interviews, all that good stuff. Um, how about like, uh, do you do you put up st- uh, like junket stuff on YouTube? Can I see you interviewing The Rock or anything? Uh, <laughs> You know, I think all of it is done through movie phone. I don't have – I'm very bad actually at maintaining my own portfolio now. Um, I think because I work in the internet, I'm just like, uh, you know, I don't need the internet in my in my time off. So I just kind of unplug. And um, if you go to – I have a Twitter that I do a terrible, terrible job at updating because like I work with Twitter. So then it's like, oh my god, I can't. I can't update a second Twitter. Right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Um, you know, I have like a, a Twitter that uh, I try to update. And, you know, maybe if your listeners are very curious, I'll be sure to put some stuff on my Twitter page to send them uh, links to check me out. Uh, yeah, you can find videos of me on Movie Phone uh, interviewing 
Kevin James, and this is the weirdest thing I've ever done, and it's one of I'm so proud of it. I'm interviewing Bernie the Gorilla from The Zookeeper, oh the Kevin God. James talking animal comedy. Yes. Uh, I had the opportunity to get on camera and talk to the giant 400-pound animatronic talking gorilla, and I absolutely did it in a heartbeat. And it <laughs> is the, you know, there's so many fledgling entertainment reporters that put their their demo reels together of all their that is my demo reel it's just my my conversation with a talking gorilla three and years you, three years of working around the clock here's my demo reel yeah oh absolutely i'm so proud of it <laughs> and uh if you want to see a demo reel from me i'm just gonna say look at that interview eric larnick and bernie the gorilla that's all you need to know when it comes from me um and you can find that on YouTube, and I'll I'll be sure to send you. I'll send you a link, even, and you can. Uh, yeah, you can I want to. I want to. I want to embed that on uh on the on the post of this podcast. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely send it along. Um, but yeah, you can find all my stuff. Like I have a byline on Movie Phone. I haven't been doing as much writing lately because I'm sort of focusing on so many other multi hyphenates. Right. Um, but yeah, you can find all my all my articles and interviews and reviews on Movie Phone. Um, yeah, and. I'll update my Twitter page. If you just Google search Eric Larnick, this is a weird thing now. When you Google search my name, it's like, oh, shit, there's, like, things yeah. now in Google. It's not just, like, the, those generic yellow yellow pages listings. It's like, <laughs> oh, wait, my name is, like, attached to things. It's attached to sites that Google, yeah. like, considers valid. Attached to so, your yeah. true identity. Not, yeah, not some newscaster named Eric Larnick or something. Yeah. I think if you Google Eric Larnick, you'll find, like, I think my best stuff or the things that I was, like, craziest. Like, the things that, like, did craziest because I just didn't anticipate. And so, like, they'll be really high up on a Google search. I think one thing I did that I'm so ha- happy about. I'm a huge wrestling fan. Yes. I'm going, I'm going to SmackDown next week, you know. Oh, nice. In, uh, in Providence. I, 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 I was when I was a kid. And then yeah. I completely fell out of it forever because, you know, I just felt like, well, I don't know, I have no interest. And then just recently I went down this like YouTube rabbit hole of yeah. old clips and shit. And I was like, you know what? Wrestling's amazing. And I'm oh, going yeah, to absolutely. SmackDown. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been a wrestling fan. And uh, the WWE has tried to get into the movie making business. Yes. Um, they have their own production studio now. Yeah. Whether they've succeeded or failed is up to you. Um, but Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, was the star of uh, one of their action movies that was coming out in the fall. And no one was interested because no one really wants to talk about the WWE-produced movie. But I, I jumped at the opportunity to talk to Triple H. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really even interested in talking about the movie. I just wanted to talk to him about weird i wanted to pitch him ideas for movies with wrestlers <laughs> um and i got to and one of the things i wanted to do is because you know in aol's vast network of sites you know for movies and tv and uh lifestyle and all of that you know we have we had an mma a mixed martial arts sports site mm-hmm. uh devoted exclusively to mixed martial arts coverage and i figured hey he would be an interesting perspective talk about mixed martial arts because so many ufc fans hate the wwe for being fake right because it's fake not like that real ufc so i figured it'd be fun to talk to him and you know i just asked him to give his thoughts comparing uh you know the wwe to ufc and he had said that uh he had said that actually i think ufc 
needs to evolve to our level. I think we give you a more entertaining show. You know, our fights aren't going to end in 30 seconds. Right. Um, you know, he's, he had, he definitely had a passionate response and I was like, holy shit in my head. I was like, that's the perfect, that's going to get so many people talking. Yeah. And so I gave that to that, you know, our MMA site and they were like, holy shit. And they just like produced the quotes verbatim and it, blew up in the MMA sports world that that comment um and it got so it got such crazy coverage and then it got to the point where Dana White the president and co-owner of the UFC was doing a press conference for the latest uh UFC fight that was happening and the reporters were like what are your thoughts on Triple H's statements that you know wrestling blah 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 is more entertaining than UFC and he was and then he started like taking a couple shots at Triple H, and he's like, he's opening his mouth when he shouldn't be. Oh man! And I was like, holy crap! I facilitated like this weird <laughs> argument between UFC and WWE. And it's awesome. And when you Google search Eric Larnick, that's like maybe like the fourth or fifth search result is that story. And I, I'm so proud that like I rustled, <laughs> I rustled those jimmies, and I'm so happy. Eric Larnick revs up Triple H. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, that's awesome. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to us. It's a really cool, very different perspective from a lot of what we've had on here. And it was really just good to talk to you again. Oh, yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Of course, anytime. Awesome. Um, uh, do check him out. It, 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 you can trust what this man says. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a deep diver of, of pop culture and, and yeah. beyond. Um, yeah, I've powered too much. I can't help myself. <laughs> it's led to cool things. So yeah. there you go. It, it it can lead to cool things, kids. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Eric, and we'll talk soon. Yes, likewise. All right. Bye-bye.